Sam Smith. You might have heard of him. Um, his name has become synonymous with laissez-faire capitalism and the f- free hand, the, no, the invisible hand. Ah, uh, yes. So Smith is often quoted as the father of free markets, the father of economics. Oh, and for this week's episode, I do want to point out that it is going to be a little different, as I had the brilliant opportunity to interview my entire history of economics class at NYU. So a special thanks to my professor, Yanis Katsonis, who had this brilliant idea. And so back to the story. So Smith is famous for his theories involving the invisible hand, an unobservable market force that helps demand and supply reach equilibrium, often tied to laissez-faire economics. He's often quoted by economists whenever there's a debate against government intervention. The markets will correct themselves, therefore the government shouldn't intervene. Let the children starve. Let the working conditions be horrible. This is all part of the natural regulating mechanisms of the market. So in my mind, I'm obviously talking about the worst type of economist, one that is only looking at modern day data and nothing else. But sadly, I do also think that the field of economics, although it seems to be advancing, it's putting a lot more emphasis on data and less on economic history. Therefore, economists many times are not looking at the context of theories, only the theories themselves. So in this episode, we're going to cover a little bit about what economists get wrong about Adam Smith. So Smith was an 18th century Scottish philosopher. He's often considered as the father of modern economics. Smith's most famous book was written in 1776, The Wealth of Nations, whose central message was simply to trust the market. If supply shifts one way, demand will follow, and vice versa. So the government should really just stay out of the market for the most part. But to understand why Smith was so adamant about protecting free markets, we need to understand what came before him. During the European age of exploration, when European powers were going around and colonizing the world, the rising empires adopted new economic policies that would be known as mercantilism. So the theory of mercantilism held that a country's power depended mainly on its wealth. Wealth, after all, allowed nations to build strong navies, purchase vital goods. Therefore, economic policy was all about gaining the most amount of wealth as possible in the form of the most amount of bullion, silver, gold. So merchants literally had to go out there and gather as much physical silver and gold as they could carry and then bring it back to their home European markets. This led to the rapid accumulation of wealth in the hands of the very few, of the nobles, of the monarchs, of the savvy merchants. Wealth was accumulated in a very small percent of the population, which isn't exactly fair, or at least not fair in accordance to Adam Smith. So Smith was responding directly to mercantilism, a power structure that gave value, as in physical gold and silver, to the very few rich and noble. Because wealth of a nation was tied to bullion, those who held that bullion were more important than those who didn't. So Smith was trying to change the notion of what really constituted the wealth of a nation. Well, I think that one of the things that was really revolutionary about um his way of thinking was that he sort of centered it on 
production and on labor. So I would say that, in his view, the sum total of uh, all the wages that people made and and the uh, the sort of the level of production that the whole nation was at would be a good way to look at the wealth of a nation. Ah, yes. So for Smith, the wealth of the nation consisted of the value of its labor. The labor theory of value. Because uh, Adam Smith thinks that uh, labor should be the equal standard for everyone, because everyone labors and that put everyone on the equal ground to evaluate like your wealth. So that's kind of surprising to me, because he's not talking about class differences and others. He's saying that everyone's equal in terms of labor. So labor was important because at the end of the day, it served as the one factor that made everyone be equal. So at the end of the day, if a man strips down from his crown, fancy clothes, cape, or armor even, what would he and a peasant have in common? Well, they both have the ability to do labor. Therefore, labor is a sort of equalizing force, and it's meant to bring a sense of equality in comparison to the state, a monarchy at the time, holding all the power in the hands of the very few. So by pitting the value, the wealth of a nation, to labor, it's giving laborers and individuals more power. It's putting them more on an equal footing, which is ironic. I know it's not something you would associate with Adam Smith and the ruthless free market, the pursuit of equality. (laughs) So Smith cared a lot for labor and individual workers. I mean, just ask yourself, how exactly did Smith even feel about unions? One, One thing he said about unions... I think I think he called them like combinations of of workers, but he also compared them to he compared sort of like combinations of laborers to how um, producers already sort of have combinations or already in in cahoots with each other in a way. So one thing that he said was that laborers should also have a right to sort of be in communication and and combine together because partially because it would be unfair for the laborers not to be able to and for the producers of wealth to be able to. So Smith believed in the ability of both business and labor to be able to pursue their own self-interest and regulate themselves within the market. But remember, his main argument at this point, it's not that he's arguing against government intervention per se, he's arguing against, well, as you put it, government interference in the market and specifically against mercantilism, as you put it. So what he doesn't want is to predetermine the nature of how you sell your labor. So Smith doesn't want any corporation or institution to have an unfair control over labor, over who can produce what and how much. He wanted laborers to be able to be free so that they could act in accordance with the market. For example, Smith in The Wealth of Nations talks about how much he hated guilds, a medieval association of craftsmen or merchants often controlling who could be part of business, how much they could sell, etc. He also really did not like monopolies. I mean, they would just inflate price for more profit. So Smith really couldn't imagine, he couldn't fathom a government that was in tune with the economy, the needs of the people. I mean, the state at the time was highly corrupt, and the wealth was put in the hands of the very few, those who often had titles by birth. So Smith was focusing on free markets that would give the individual the right to pursue their own self-interest in accordance to that market. 
rather than the government just forcing them into a sort of particular role. They had a sort of freedom. So I think it's important to note that Smith kind of viewed humanity with a rosy pair of sunglasses when it came to analyzing the individual, because while Smith was a humanist, which was a huge thing I think most people forget, Humanism emphasizes that human actions, and it places a great value on human nature. The Enlightenment stressed the ability for human beings to use reason to make society a better place. So for Smith, the individual was dominated by, it is true, self-love, self-interest, but not without concern for others. So. Of course, his sort of view of the individual man would not lead him to the conclusion that one individual will always need to conquer and exploit the other, if that makes sense, which is a common thread that we tend to associate with capitalism because of Marx. Smith also wasn't against the government intervention in everything. He just was really against government intervention in the markets, mostly because of mercantilism. But Smith believed that the government had three functions that they should be serving. They needed to protect national borders, they needed to enforce civil law, and they needed to engage in public works, education. Smith even had something to say about taxation that was revolutionary, whose words have been twisted by later economists, by later economic institutions who wanted to use Smith to promote their own means. Uh, it was a, an institute for the advancement of free market everything. Um, and it came out with an edition which I considered to be definitive, which was well researched about uh, the, of the wealth of nations. And um, so uh, it was on, there's a section in it on taxation, and I was actually researching taxation. I wanted to know, well, what did Adam say about taxation? So I went back and I found passages. And um, in this particular case, uh, they had taken out because of using different editions and different versions that he had handwritten. So in this edition, because they could play around with which edition we're dealing with, they left out the part where he talks about taxation, other than the part where he says that taxation should be equal. I know that by today's standards, this kind of sounds like, really, you've been talking a lot about how Smith kind of really cared about labor, about the individual. Well, I want to remind you guys how the idea of taxation during his time for everyone is very revolutionary. Because when Smith was writing that taxation should be equal, he's saying that there shouldn't be large categories of the population exempt from taxation. You see, during the time, the nobility, the clergy, the monarchs, people were exempt from taxation simply by their birth. So Smith is saying that now everyone should be paying taxes. It should be equal. Um, Adam Smith says that we each have to pay taxes. This is already uh, radical. For an old regime, this is radical. Um, he then says, we should also probably pay the same proportion, even more radical. And then says, the wealthiest should probably pay even a little higher rate on, on the extra money that they've made. And that's progressive taxation, that's really radical. And this part was omitted from these editions I'm talking about, because these institutions were arguing for a flat tax. <laughs> yeah, so if it, you know, they probably could say, well, editorially speaking, it's because we're dealing with different editions, we had to choose and whatnot. He, he argued for, he made the case for a progressive taxation. 
And that's it. So Smith isn't really kind of what I imagined a heartless economist would say, where he's just saying, let the markets decide the fate of the individual. If it hurts them, it so hurts them. He's actually an economist that's trying to argue on how to make things better for the most amount of people in society. He's focusing on the laborers, on the individuals. So it's kind of interesting to think about. I wonder what some of the reasons are for why people misunderstand Smith. Because uh, people don't actually read the wealth of nations; they just hear about, you know, uh, you know, the invisible hand, and they, you know, take that as a dogma, and they don't know the the full picture. Well, I think that's also a, a product of the fact that perhaps later economists sort of used him and picked and chose the ideas that he had that best suited their own views, um, and then those. Uh, the the sort of the, the co-option of those ideas for their own purposes, you know, became sort of how we actually know him since nobody's actually reading the original book. So now we've covered why there are reasons that we tend to forget certain aspects about the values of Adam Smith. I mean, he was writing his economic views in response to his current economic system, and his ideas were separated from context, which granted that is just kind of how economics works, but that's why we're all history geeks here, right? Because we want to learn the context behind people, places, events. That is why economic history is so, so important to study where the economics even came from. So I'm leaving you with this fragment of one of my classmates that is perfect to close off this episode. I mean, I think it perfectly encaptures how me, the rest of the class, and maybe you guys felt while learning about Adam Smith in this episode. I think, um, and this is just sort of me, but also um, there's a section um, by the New York Times called By the Book, where they basically just interview academics, writers, and authors about their favorite books and authors. And Amartya Sen, who's another economist that we studied in class, mentioned that Adam Smith is perhaps one of the most misunderstood you know, economists and writers and authors and thinkers. Because when we think of Adam Smith, including how I thought of him before this class, we sort of, yeah, he's this free market economy dude who like, hates labor and doesn't care about like whatever humanistic values um, and we often yeah don't study that part or at least see that in pop culture um, so yeah that was that was quite surprising to me the fact that he did you know care about unions and the development of labor um, yeah in the grander scheme of things in in order to increase efficiency yeah and so, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode. It was new. It was different. Let me know what you think. DM me on Instagram. Comment on my TikTok. Quick shout out to my Patreon. If you would like to join the crew and become a patron, you will get access to special episodes, a podcast series about the Renaissance that I'm currently working on, and you will support me and all of my hopes and dreams and my work. But of course, the best support I could get from all of you is you guys simply listening to this podcast. So many thanks and goodbye.